0: Bible in front of you uh, will be on page 1061. If you don't own a Bible, I would invite you to just take one of those with you um, as a gift. A couple weeks ago when we began Advent, I um, challenged everyone to fast. Uh, how's that going? <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> no, I've had some really... Uh, so so i, I I talked about how the Advent season is different than the Christmas season, right? Christmas starts on Christmas Day, and it's a feast, and we rejoice in the birth of our Savior. But Advent is a season of um, ex- expectation. we just sang, oh come, O come, Emmanuel, this idea that like, we're waiting for the Savior to get here. And traditionally, throughout church history, Advent season has been a, not a feasting season, but a fasting season, uh, a season of reflection and repentance and um, self-denial. And that's a weird thing culturally for us because we're in the middle of a consumer-driven feasting season right now uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so I, I said, why don't we try to fast from something food-related on Wednesdays and Fridays for the month of Advent? And um, I've been sending out little uh, devotionals each, each week for that. And I've talked to some of you, and it's really amazing if you um, commit to the discipline of fasting what the Lord does right he he meets you in that that weird need of hunger that like we rarely experience or if we experience it we almost immediately satiate it right and and to say like no i'm not going to do that provides an opportunity to to listen to what's going on in your soul in a different way and so i would just encourage you if you've been fasting with us to keep it up we've got a couple more weeks to do and if you haven't you could start now um, and if you I, i'm not going to go through the whole thing that you can listen to the podcast for more instructions um, but we're going through this series um, based on um, some some questions that came up in the fourth century about who is Jesus. And the Christians in the early church were wrestling with this idea, if is, is Jesus really God? Why did God become a human being? And there was this church father named Athanasius who was a, a proponent of what we would consider Orthodox Christianity at that time, and he argued for the fact that Jesus is divine, he is the eternal God, and he became a real human being. Why did he do that? And and, and we said that there were four reasons that we were gonna talk about this season. The first reason was that prophecy in the Old Testament said that he would. The Old Testament said that the, the savior and the king would be a human being, but would also be divine. Second, we said that, that Jesus became human to defeat death. Death is a enemy that is inaccessible to God because God is immortal. God is eternal. God is life itself, and so in order to um, def- battle with and defeat death, God had to become mortal. This week we're going to answer this question this way: God became human to show us what God is like. And I would just continue to draw your attention as as you can to our artwork. Our artists have been. Um, uh, Faithful as always to take my random uh, sermon series ideas and make something beautiful out of them, Um, but they are using these satin or I don't know if they're satin; they're they're silks, I think, to demonstrate these different ideas. And um, if you look at it straight on, they all kind of merge together, and then you can you can look at that a little bit more afterwards. But um, we're going to talk about what God is like and how Jesus reveals that to us this morning. As always, we will do some Q&R at the end. So if you have questions about anything, you can jump on slido.com and type in RevCDA in the box and type in your questions, and we'll interact with those at the end. So let's... That was a big intro. Let's pray. (laughs) Oh, Lord God, we, we love you. We praise you for your goodness and your glory. God, as we um, just are in the midst of this this season, thinking about your, your first coming uh, as a human being, as a baby, as, a, as an infant, uh, and then we're reminded of your second coming, that you will come again as a, as a conquering king to usher in a kingdom that will never end. God, I pray that we would, that our hearts would be stirred to know you better. That we would enjoy you. That we would pursue you. That we would uh, love you. Because God, you, you are never far from us and we, we are often far from you. I just pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts this morning by your word. Remind us of, of your goodness and glory. And God, I, I want to pray for those that are that are sick in our congregation. Um, I want to pray especially for Matt, uh, just hearing that he, Matt Jenkins, went to the hospital again today. I pray for his safety. Pray for the healing hands of the doctors. God, for those that are just ill with, with, with the flu or the cold and, and at home, God, I pray that you would heal. God, meet us in this place this morning as we take a look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, a couple years ago, my wife, uh, who's a very good wife, found the uh, Star Trek interactive DVD trivia game at a thrift store for $2. She bought it and uh, brought it home as a present for me. And this, the way this works is it's, it's kind of like, it's Trivial Pursuit, basically. There's a, there's a little board, and you got you to gotta answer questions. But, but when, you answer, when you get asked the questions, it, it has a little DVD with it because it's, you know, high-tech. And, it, and you, you click something on the DVD, and the question is some kind of visual thing. And one of the kinds of clues requires you to answer what character is this, and it puts up a picture, but it's all pixelated, it's all just random kind of colors, and then a few seconds go by, and then it gets a little less pixelated, and then a few seconds go by, and it gets a little less pixelated, and whoever buzzes in first with the right answer gets the points, and in case you wonder, yes, I always win. And this what we're going to talk about this morning is this idea that when we ask the question, what is God like, our vision of God through human history has started out pretty pixelated. God, God has revealed himself, but, but there's, all, there's these questions. And then we go through redemptive history through scripture a little ways, and, and those, some of those questions get answered, and the, the, some of the pixelation goes away. And then a little farther down the line, some of those questions get answered, and a little more of the pixelation goes away. And then at the end of the line, when the picture is perfectly clear, we see an image. And that image is Jesus. So to start this morning, I want to back up a little bit. I said last week that this series was was not so much in... um, an exegetical series, a verse-by-verse verse through the Bible series. We do that a lot. We've been in Genesis for a long time, just kind of going chunk by chunk through the text. This is more of a theological series. So there's some some ideas that I just kind of want to go through. And the first one is, in, in some sense, God is unknowable. What do I mean by that? So the, the Christian faith conceives of a reality, a universe That is created by a being that existed prior to and outside that reality, right? God is outside of everything that we know as reality. uh, Many philosophers and theologians have have used the example of an author writing a book, right? The, The author is outside the book. He is independent from the book, his characters have no understanding of who or what he is because they're in a different realm entirely. Because of this, God is able if he chooses to be completely inaccessible to his creation. Like he is not obligated in any way to let us know anything about him. John of Damascus in the 7th century said, "No one has ever known God save to whom he revealed himself. See, there's, there's nothing that you and I can do to discover what God is like. See, as Lewis says, when you, when you come to know God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. But here's part of the good news, right? And it's also the... Christian doctrine that we got the name of our church from. God reveals himself to people. The doctrine of revelation, this idea that God, while completely inaccessible, chooses to show himself to his creation. He chooses to show human beings what he's like. But because we are a kind of being that is so much lower than God, we can only really understand a little bit of what God is like. Hebrews 1, verse one, many of you in our community groups are going through Hebrews right now. It's a fascinating book. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. The author says, God uses different methods of revelation to communicate to people what he's like. Theodoret of Cyrus in the fifth century said, God appeared to Abraham in one way, to Moses in another, to Elijah in another, to Micaiah in another. Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel saw him under different guises. After all, the divine nature is not pluriform, but without either shape or appearance, simple and uncomplicated. What does that mean, that, that God is without shape or appearance, simple and uncomplicated? That means that, that God, in, in the essence of who he is, is incomprehensible. He is beyond our understanding. He's non-material. He's non-spatial. He's, so he's outside of space. He's non-temporal. He's outside of time. He's unchanging. He's, he's what theologians call simple, which means he doesn't have parts. These are all like ideas that we can barely come to grips with. C.S. Lewis uses the example of geometry. He says, think about a point, a mathematical point in a one-dimensional space. Now think about a two-dimensional space where you can take four of those points and make a square. Now think about a three-dimensional space where you can take six of those squares and make a cube. We're all tracking with that. Why? Because we are three-dimensional beings. We live in three-dimensional space. We examine cubes. But imagine if you were a two-dimensional being. Imagine if all you knew was squares and someone was trying to explain to you what a cube was like. There just wouldn't be the words. Physics tries to do this, right? If, you, if you're if you a fan of, of modern physics, I think they they talk about how there's at least 10 dimensions past the three that we experienced. Do they see those dimensions? Do they like take pictures of them? No, they've, they've got really big math equations where they show that they probably exist. But what does that even mean? Well, nobody really knows because they're beyond us. We can't get there. And that's where God is. God is beyond us. He's a kind of being that we just cannot fathom. But God reveals himself. He reveals himself in ways that we can get a glimpse of what he's like. But it's, it's pretty fuzzy. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Paul recognizes that it's hard to understand what God is like. And he says it's like looking in a mirror. And, And for many of us today, we'd be like, I don't know. I look in a mirror all the time and it seems pretty clear. But back in Paul's day, mirrors were very different. My family was in uh, Washington D.C. in October and we went to the Museum of the Bible and they had an ancient Jewish artifacts exhibit. And they had like a like a lady's pocket mirror. Like I mean, like you would have today a little compact, right? And it was a little circle, but it wasn't glass, it was brass. So it's kind of like, I mean it's brass colored, golden kind of. And it's polished But it's not that polished. And you look in it, and you can kind of see something. But it's definitely not my face looking back at me. See? Thank the Lord that you were born in this century and not that one. And Paul says it's like that. I look in a mirror, one of those brass mirrors that all of the rich ladies have, and I can kind of see something, but it's just not super clear. Our understanding of God, as clear as it is, is still far from perfect. And that's not to say that we don't have true ideas about God. It's not like we we would say, well, we think God is love, but God is actually wicked. That's not the point. It's more like we understand that God is love, but you have no idea how amazing that love is. You have no conception as a created being, what that really even means. It's so big and so great and so far beyond us that we just can't fit it into our heads. Alan of Lille, who was a French philosopher in the 12th century said, God is an intelligible sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Think about that for an hour or two. Whatever, whatever we envision of God, we would think, like, this is the middle of God, and we travel out to the outside and reach the edge of God. And, and, and Alan says, no, there is no edge of God. And so the center of God, you, you, without the edges, you can't find the center because the center is everywhere. And that's just a metaphor. But when we think deeply about God, we very quickly reach our limits. And this is a good thing. Some of you, uh, maybe, maybe you're, you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing. Maybe you're, you're not a Christian today. And you think like, well, that's kind of dumb that you can't explain God. But I think that's a good thing. Because if I could figure out the being that I'm worshiping 100%, that means that I'm kind of at least on par with and maybe superior to that being. If I have it all figured out, this is not really God, is it? C.S. C.S. Lewis again uh, in *Mere Christianity*, with his wit, says it like this: If Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier. But it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. Of course, anything anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. And I, I just I think that's really important to remember. Like when we get to the edges of our understanding about God, it's because God is so much bigger than we are. And that's a good thing because we need him to be in order to save us. In 1 in Corinthians, when Paul says, you know, it's like a mirror, but someday it'll be face to face. He's thinking about an idea that we're going to talk about more next week that someday we will be drawn into that higher dimension and we will understand more clearly what God is like. So God is basically incomprehensible, but he reveals himself. And he's always revealing himself. So how has he done that? In, In the book of Hebrews, the author says through the prophets. And that's kind of shorthand for the Hebrew Scriptures. So what are some ways that, that as we look through the Old Testament, God reveals himself? Well, the first way that that he says he reveals himself is through the creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Space, the stars, these things communicate something about reality. They communicate that reality is bigger than us, right? And so the cause of reality must be even bigger still. Here's a picture from the James Webb Telescope. We got that, Trevor? Yeah, there you go. So you might have seen this. The James Webb Telescope just recently came online. It's like orbiting the sun millions of miles away from us, sending back images of the stars. This is a picture of um, thousands of galaxies. Each galaxy has thousands of stars in it. Each of those stars have thousands of planets and thousands of moons around them. And this image is the amount of space. If you you took a grain of sand and held it out at arm's length and used it to cover part of that grain of sand to cover part of the sky, that's how big that picture is. You think about that for a second and pretty soon you just have no concept of spatial awareness. Like, I I don't know what anything means anymore. But that tells us something about God. It tells us that that if, if there is a being that exists outside of this reality that made all this stuff, he is so much bigger than that. Paul in Romans adds to this. He says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Paul says that humanity is blameworthy because we have not recognized something about who God is through the creation. He is showing us what he's like by the things that he's made, and we are ignoring that truth in order to worship lesser things. In the book of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas are traveling around the Mediterranean, uh, telling people about Jesus and planting churches. And they come to this town, and uh, they heal. They, they, they perform a healing, and everybody thinks they must be gods. They call them Zeus and Hermes, and and the and they they rush to the temple and get a bull, and they're going to try to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, who are who they think are, are deities. And Paul says, people, why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you and we are proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, though he did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Paul says that, You can look at all of the good things that you experience and deduce from that something about God. Now, while there's there's plenty of wrong in the world, there's plenty of suffering in the world, you and I have experienced suffering individually, we can look out in the world and see suffering on a grand scale, Paul says that there is a general sense in which life on this planet seems to be built explicitly for us to live here, to thrive, to thrive. And that should tell us something about God. Should tell us something about God's care for humanity. A little later in the book of Romans, again, Paul writes in chapter 2, when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law was written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Paul brings up the human conscience. There's something he says in every single human being that gives them a sense of what is good, what is right, what is wrong, what is unjust. And that understanding gives us knowledge about what God is like. We all have this yearning for love, for justice, for compassion, for community, for relationship. And we can, we can think about, okay, if the creation is like that, what must the creator be like? This is called natural law. A pretty famous piece of natural law that we all probably know comes from Thomas Jefferson. He wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson says, we can look out into the world and deduce some things based on it about the way the world is supposed to work, about the character of God. We have been given these rights because that is who we understand God to be. And that makes sense, right? We we learn about the artist through his art, through her art. Like if you, if you look at a beautiful painting, you're going to be able to learn something about the person that painted it. If you listen to music, you're going to begin to understand the composer. Even if maybe you just, um, you own a home and you decorate it. You have a certain aesthetic. Like when you come into someone's home, you're going to go, oh, I understand something about you because of the paintings on the wall and the pictures that you show and the colors and the fabrics. Even if all you all your artistic ability is like, I, I can make a Spotify playlist. Great. If I listen to that Spotify playlist, I will learn something about what kind of a person you are, what your interests are, what you love. And so God is always revealing himself to us through his creation. But God, furthermore, the the pixelated picture gets a little clearer. He reveals himself through the Mosaic law, through the old covenant with Israel. God begins this revelation in a special way to a specific group of people called the Israelites. This is the story we are listening in on when we read the Old Testament. The beginning of that story in Exodus, Moses, the the man that God chooses to deliver the people from Egypt, he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed, and he goes to investigate it, and he he meets God there, and God commissions him to go back to Egypt to rescue his people. And Moses doesn't really want to. He's got a bunch of excuses why he's the wrong guy, and God should choose somebody else. And finally, he goes, uh, if I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. The Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. God declares his, his covenant name to the people of Israel, the name Yahweh. It, it ties with the language of I am that I am, and it means the self existent one. God introduces himself to these people in a way that is uh, more specific than what we can deduce from creation. And I think it's primarily in order to put him in contrast with the gods of Egypt, these other gods. They come and they go, and there's a God of the Nile and there's a God of the sun, and they do these things for you. I'm bigger and broader, and I am overwhelmingly greater than all of those gods. Later on in Exodus, after the people have been rescued and met God at Mount Sinai, Moses is up on the mountain and he longs to get to know God better. He says, God, show me your face. And Yahweh says, If I show you my face, it will kill you. Remember last week, we talked about the presence of God being radioactive. He is good, but he is so overwhelmingly good that we in our sinfulness cannot even handle him. And so God basically says, why don't you hide in this corner, and I'll cover you up, and I'll walk by you, and you can see kind of the backside as I go by. And in Exodus 34, we read, Yahweh came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Yahweh passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So, in this statement, this, this passage about, about God's character, which, by the way, is the most quoted Bible verse. In the Old Testament, so all of the other Old Testament authors, they're constantly going back to this verse and thinking about it and meditating on it and and reworking it. But God gives us more information about his character. He is good. He is kind. He is patient and loving, but he's also just. He's not going to let evil go unpunished. He's going to take care of every wrong in the world. And we go through the history of Israel and they, they learn more about God as they stumble through periods of obedience and disobedience and faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And we get to the prophets. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 46, speaking for God, he, he almost, he mocks the deities of the Israelites' neighbors. He says, Bel crouches, Nebo cowards. Idols depicting them are consigned to beasts and cattle. The images you carry are loaded as a burden for the weary animal. The gods cower, they crouch together. They're not able to rescue the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been sustained from the womb, carried along since birth. I will be the same until your old age, and I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will bear you and rescue you. To whom will you compare me or make me equal? Who will you measure me with so that we should be like each other? Those who pour out their bags of gold and weigh out silver on scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they kneel and bow down to it. They lift it on their shoulder and bear it along. They set it in its place and there it stands. It does not budge from its place. They cry out to it, but it doesn't answer. It saves no one from his trouble. Remember this and be brave. Take it to your heart, you transgressors remember what happened long ago for I am God and there is no other I am God and no one is like me I declare the beginning the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will And so we read in Isaiah that God is is mocking. The false gods of of Babylon and and Israel's other neighbors. He's saying, It's so foolish that you, you go to the trouble of collecting all this precious metal and then working on it to make this God, and it just sits there. And if it ever needs to be moved, you have to pick it up and carry it. And you pray to it. It doesn't do anything. I'm nothing like that, God says. I've protected you. Since you were young, and I will take care of you until you're old. No one is like me. I see the end from the beginning. I'm outside of time. He is so essentially different than the idols that we trust in. And just because we don't have little gold statues in our house, don't think that we don't worship idols. But there's There's still a disconnect, isn't there? It's still really hard to understand what God is like. We are, as human beings, so far from understanding. Because he's so different than us. Athanasius, in this book that he wrote about why God became human, he's thinking about Romans chapter 1, which we read a little bit ago. And he says this, For since human beings, having rejected the contemplation of God... And as though sunk in an abyss with their eyes held downward, seeking God in creation and things perceptible, setting up for themselves mortal humans and demons as gods. For this reason, the lover of human beings and the common savior of all, the word of God, takes to himself a body and dwells as human among humans and draws to himself the perceptible senses of all human beings so that those who think that God is in things corporeal might from what the Lord wrought through the actions of the body, know the truth, and through him might consider the Father. What is Athanasius saying there? He's saying that we are so bad at thinking rightly about God, and we are so prone to worshiping lesser things, things that have been created as gods themselves, that God, in his kindness, becomes a created thing. He becomes a human being he comes down to our level so that we could begin to experience more of who he is in a way that we can understand. And this makes sense to me because if you've ever like, been in a, like a math class or a science class or anything that's got like complex ideas, what's a good textbook do? It gives you diagrams. It gives you pictures graphs and charts and illustrations, because just trying to figure out the math in your mind is kind of hard for most of us. And this is what God does, because it is, is so difficult to understand well what God is like. God brings himself down to our level, a human level that we can understand. And we learn in Hebrews that God is revealed completely through Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of Hebrews just kicks off this book just with a bang. These are some of the best verses in the Bible, if you can say that. I don't know if you can say that. We're just going to talk about a couple things that he says there. First of all, he says that the sun is the pinnacle of God's communication. There isn't anything else coming. See, and this is in these last days, he has revealed himself through his son. The author of Hebrews envisions either the end of the old age and the beginning of something new, or maybe he envisions the end of all of history. But either way, he says there's not any more revelation coming. And this is um, this is not what someone who would uh, ascribe to like the new age would say. Like if you're familiar with new age teaching. Um, They would argue that Jesus was a great ascended master, right? And he ushered in the age of Pisces. But now we're in the age of Aquarius, which I think started in the 1970s with that song. I'm not sure. But anyway, we need new revelation. The world has changed. We need something new. And this is the claim of the Christian cult. It's like what we got from Jesus was really good but wait till you hear what we learn from these golden plates that I found. The author of Hebrews says, no, that's not the way it works. God has spoken to us in these last days, finally, ultimately, through his son. The apostle John, beginning of his gospel, writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John here is meditating on something similar as he thinks about the Son as eternal wisdom, the understanding, the communication of God being translated into a form that we can better understand. Back to Hebrews, the author says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The word radiance is the word "apogosma" in Greek. It's a fun one, apogosma. (laughs) It only appears once in the Bible. But it's a word that's used by another Jewish author around the same time in a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. And he uses it to describe the wisdom that created the world. If you've read through the book of Proverbs, you're probably familiar with that. In Proverbs 8, the author describes wisdom in a very similar way as the mechanism that God used through which he created the world. And you start reading about this wisdom, and you kind of think, like, this wisdom sounds like a person. That wisdom is Jesus. Colossians 1 For everything was created by him, and in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And for him, Paul there is talking about Jesus. So last week we talked about God's power and his glory, his his radioactive presence that needed to be hidden in the back room of the temple, the holiest place. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is all of that power and glory and holiness in one human being. He is the radiance of God's glory. But he's also the exact expression of his nature. The word expression is where we get our word character, and it's used a lot in the ancient world to talk about an image on a coin. If, you, if, if, I, if I ask you to um, think of what Joe Biden looks like, there's an image that comes into your head. If I ask you to think about what Vladimir Putin looks like, it's probably an image that comes into your head. But if you're living in Jerusalem in the first century, under the Roman Empire, and I ask you to imagine what Caesar looks like, well, you've never been to Rome. You've never had an audience with Caesar. You really have no idea what he looks like, except that Caesar prints his face on all your money. Every single little coin has got his picture on it. But the problem is, is you know, there's like millions of coins. The coins are inanimate objects, so that's not really Caesar. It's just a picture of his face. But that's why the author of Hebrews says that he is, Jesus is the exact expression of his nature. His nature, his essential self, his very being. Jesus, the God-man, is the image of God, is exactly what God is like in a human person. So when we ask the question, what is God like, the answer we're given is Jesus. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask the question, and it's a good question we should ask a lot, is is why does this matter? Like, we can talk about theology, and and for some of us, it's very life-giving. Right? For some people, the, the intellectual pursuit of, of these ideas brings us is a, is a kind of worship. But for others of us, we're like, I, just, I don't really understand. I don't really care. What's the big deal? Why does it matter? Because he is the heir of all things, Hebrews says. In the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Jesus has been given charge over creation. All of reality is under his authority. A couple weeks ago, maybe it's been a month now, I don't remember, Elon Musk bought Twitter. You remember that? Uh, in, in, in the websites that I read, it was like the apocalypse was coming. Well, we're all going to have to leave Twitter because Elon's in charge now. I think that was a little overblown. But the instinct there is the person in charge of an organization matters. Like, we know some things about Elon Musk and maybe you love him and maybe you hate him, but the people that hate him are like, Twitter's gonna become like the things that we hate because he's gonna influence the organization. The person at the helm of the organization shapes it. Their values, their character, their goals, they all impact the way it works. Jesus isn't the head of a social media company or a nonprofit, but everything that exists, right? He is in charge of reality, Hebrews said. So it's a good question. Well, what is Jesus like? What are his values? What are his goals? How does he imagine this running according to his desires? And unlike Caesar, who just stamps his face on a coin, we're all actually invited to get to know Jesus personally. We're invited to find out about him through his word and the scriptures, through his Holy Spirit in our hearts, through his people in the church. And if you want to know what the world is supposed to be like, the trajectory that it's on, how you as a creature in this world are designed to function? Look to Jesus. Some of you in here are old enough to remember wearing what would Jesus do bracelets, right? That was a thing for a while. But it's a really good question. In my relationships, I'm having having friction with this person. How, How do I think Jesus would handle this? As I read about him in the Gospels, But As I begin to understand more about what he's like through his people, through the church, by the power of his Holy Spirit, like, is my instinct here the right one? Or or maybe Jesus would do it differently. In your business practices, we've got all these, these rules about how to run a successful business in this country, and many of them are just fine. But some of them, I think, go completely against who Jesus is. Do we ask those questions? In public policy, we talk about, there's a, there's a big debate always about whether you know, the United States is a Christian nation. And there's a lot of arguments on both sides of that, but what would it really be like if Jesus ran this country? What, what would our policies be like? How would we care for the poor? What would be the size and shape and purpose of our military? I don't know all those answers, but it's a really interesting question to ponder. If Jesus was president, I saw that bumper sticker, Jesus 2024. If Jesus was president, what decisions would he make? Probably a lot that all of us wouldn't like. Just saying. The fact that God's ultimate revelation is in Jesus Christ matters because Jesus is in charge of reality. And then lastly, the ultimate revelation of God through Jesus matters because God is making us like Christ. That is our trajectory. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you've, repented of your sins and invited Jesus to be the king of your life. He hasn't left you where you're at. He's put you on his project to be made more like him. We have internalized this myth in the church that our faith is about going to heaven when we die. I mean, there's, there's billboards all over the place about that. You know, if you crash this car, do you know where you'll go? And that's not an unimportant question. That is, we should should consider that carefully. But that is a very, um, that is a small part of the gospel. We need to understand that there, there is something much greater for us in Christ. Life, everlasting life that begins today. The power of the Holy Spirit residing in us now. The actual... God himself living in our being, speaking to us, leading us, guiding us. And day by day, the instruction of God as we walk through life, shaping us, our character, our values to be more and more like Christ until one day we will be transformed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's that mirror again. It's confusing. It's hard to see. But the work that's being done in you as you stumble forward in your uh, life with Christ is shaping you to be more and more like Jesus. Paul is thinking in this verse about the story of, of Moses. Um, after, after God hit him in the rock and went by him and, and uh, proclaimed his character, Moses came off the mountain and he, gl- he glowed. like his, his face was glowing. And Paul is saying, as we become more acquainted with God through Christ, as we get to know him better, more and more of Jesus rubs off on us. We become more and more transformed to look like him. Our thoughts, our desires, our actions, and one day, even our physical bodies will be transformed. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. So, do some Q&R. I always forget to pull this up ahead of time. Why is God giving personality traits to the other gods? They cower, they tremble, I'm greater than them. Would that not be saying they exist and have some authority? That's such a good question. Okay, this is not a super popular opinion, but I would argue, and I think there's good textual evidence and a lot of Old Testament scholarship, back me up, that the gods are real. I don't think, when we think, of, when we think of false gods, we think of like stuff that people make up. And in one sense, it is stuff that people make up. But in another sense, there is a spiritual world out there that is bent on the destruction of humanity. Uh, and we don't have time to get into all of the Old Testament background for it. But um, I love to chat about it. So you can come talk to me later if you want to. Um, the gods of the nations have authority, they have power, and they want to destroy people. And that's why there's such a problem. Uh, Just one thing, the, the authors of the Psalms and many of the prophets often compare God to the other gods. You are so much better. You are so much bigger. You are so much greater than the other gods. That's not a compliment if the other gods aren't real, right? Like, if, if you're giving someone a compliment and you're comparing them to something that, is, that does not exist, that is imaginary, that's it, not really a very good compliment. And the authors of Scripture are saying, yeah, these, these gods, these false, uh, lead, these false spiritual beings that you're worshiping, yeah, they're, they're real. They're out there and they want to destroy you. They want to lure you into their little club. So that's what I would say. They are real. seems natural law is not written down like all laws are including revealed law. If we suppress the truth, would that include suppressing natural law too? I think, I think classically, and this is—I mean, I'd have to look into this a little bit more to have a better answer. But classically, I think natural law is definitionally law that can be derived from nature, versus law that must be derived from um, written or verbal communication. So there's a difference between um, the idea that. all people everywhere deserve uh, justice. We can we can reason that out based on some some different things about humanity, and um, uh, th- there are specific ways that you should uh, celebrate the Sabbath or offer sacrifices in the temple or. Um, Uh, You should, uh, for Christians, you should gather on Sunday and you should sing together. I mean, these are these are regulations, rules. We don't like to think of them that way in the New Testament, but they are um, that need to be revealed through the text. And there is a category difference between that kind of revelation and natural law, which can be revealed through creation. And going back to Romans. Paul accuses humanity of suppressing the truth, right? And I would would argue that we suppress natural law as well. Not always, but there are plenty of circumstances in human history where everyone knows what the right thing to do is and we don't do it anyway, right? We We don't do the just thing. We don't do the kind thing. We don't treat people the way that natural law would instruct. I mean, the whole founding of the United States, right? We proclaimed that all men are created equal based on natural law, and then we enslaved millions of them for a hundred years. Now, we've worked that out, right, since then. But at the time, it was a little bit of a discontinuity. So, yeah, I think, I think we can suppress natural law as well. But I don't think Roman means that we are completely always blinded to the natural law. Because I think we're held accountable to it. I think that's Paul's argument in Romans: is that um, we are blameworthy because we recognize what's true and we decide not to obey it. We we suppress it. We we it, he says that our our consciences are seared. So I I don't think there is a circumstance where we can say like, well, we, we just we can't know anything naturally. I think um, I think as a category that still works. Is it a possibility that these other gods are actually demons? Or st- yes, yeah, I would I would say that um, that they're that the the demonic spiritual world is what is empowering the false gods that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament and even today. So, yeah, good questions, you guys. We're gonna take communion as always. Um, I find it really interesting, the line I quoted from Athanasius, about how we are so bad at worshiping an immaterial being that he graciously becomes a material being because of our weakness. Um, Our faith is in so many ways this physical, tangible thing, right? Jesus could have said on the night that he was betrayed, make sure everyone remembers my death. Write it down. I mean, it did get written down, right? And we do remember it. It's kind of the foundation of who we are as Christians. But he didn't say that. He said, remember my death by eating this bread and drinking this cup together on a regular basis. Why would he do that? Because, because we need these kind of things. We need to be... Um, We need to have these physical handholds if we're going to be deeply connected to Christ. And so, Christian, in in this room this morning, you, you are one who has been introduced to God, the ultimate reality through Christ. He became human so that you could know God more completely, more fully. And in his... His death on the cross, he, he paid the penalty for your sin and, and made a way for you to be, be made um, immortal, to be given eternal life. And so as we sing, we just invite you to come up, take the bread and the cup. We have wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. Reflect on his death on your behalf. And really think about the physicality of what you're doing taste the body and blood of Christ this morning, whatever that means exactly. It's meant to be physical. It's meant to be sensory because we begin to understand God more completely that way. You're welcome to sit or stand as we sing. You're welcome to come up and pray, kneel on the prayer rugs if you'd like, but let's just spend some time worshiping together.